for prayer and then the reading of a portion of this book. Let's pray together. Now, blessed Lord, we come now to the reading of Your Word and the preaching of it, the explaining of it. Lord, where we would hear Your voice be edified, where we would grow in grace, where we would understand. Oh Lord, we come with many infirmities and weaknesses. And we ask that by Your power and Spirit, You'd overcome them. That You would train us up in righteousness, that we would, Lord, be corrected and even rebuked if necessary. But Father, we pray that we would hear and understand and be able to make profitable use of Your Word. Lord, that we would not be guilty of looking into the, the law of liberty and forgetting what we see. So Lord, we pray that You would increase our faith today. As we hear Your Word preached, increase our love for it our hunger for it, our desire for it. Cause our homes to be strong in Christ. Cause this church, Lord, to be pleasing in your sight and faithful. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Beloved, the book of James chapter 1, I want to begin reading at verse 1 and read down through verse 12. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let the brother of her humble circumstances, uh, but the brother of humble circumstances is to the glory is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. And for the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass and its flower falls off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed, so too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Now blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, for once he has been proved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And thus ends the reading of God's precious but authoritative word. You may be seated. Now, brothers and sisters, this morning I want to address the topic, or at least the subject in verse 2, of joy. Now, that's the command. We are to consider it all joy. I, I, last week, I mainly addressed and dealt with consider, what it means to consider, and how we're to do that. Well, this morning, I want us to look at joy itself. And I think there's a couple of questions we can ask in order for us to profit from it, number one, what is this joy James is speaking of? And then secondly, how do we do it? I think that's important. And those are the two questions that I want to address and answer this morning. Now, having addressed and dealt with the modern concept and idea that anything that taxes us or anything that brings us pain, discomfort, anything that um, annoys us, if you will, is bad. Now that's a modern idea. That's a modern concept. We, we ought to be free from all discomforts. I mean, that's a, a much of commercials, um, products. If you have this product, it's going to liberate you in some way. If you wear these clothes, use this perfume, use this toothpaste, have this career, you're going to alleviate a lot of badness in your life. And so you need to purchase these things. And it works. And it's a, it's a well-oiled machine, commercialized machine that makes billions of dollars every year. And it does have an effect upon us because we're around it 24-7. That's one of the precious aspects of Christian worship. We come into the 
and to worship the living God and we come into the reality of who God is and who's in control and how He's structured everything and how everything is supposed to work and is working and we were to get a good dose of reality in Christian worship. We like the psalmist, right? That came into the presence of God and he said what? I came to my senses and I realized that those who look like nothing's going wrong in their life, God's in control, He's handling everything. It looks like the Christians are, the believers are just afflicted and suffering all the time, and yet the unbeliever looks untouched. He came into his senses in worship. We need a dose of reality. We need this check, if you will, on our hearts and our affections and our minds. We need to understand what God's Word says and what it teaches us and how we are to live in God's world. As I mentioned last week, I said that all of this command to consider it all joy rests upon the doctrine of God's ultimate sovereignty. God is sovereign over all men and their actions. All men. Unbeliever and believer. But He is specially favorable to His elect. His church. And we looked at Romans 8.28. All things work together for the good to those who love the Lord and are called according to His purpose. Now the world hates that too. We continue though to look at and to try to understand what James is doing here. Notice that when James... The very first thing that James does when he writes this letter is he launches right into the purpose of it. He begins, I mean, after he does this basic general introduction, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. He launches right into the whole reason for the letter. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you face or when you encounter various trials. He wastes no time. And he gets right to the heart of the letter. And the rest of the letter, nothing more is explaining and unfolding what it is to have this joy, what this joy looks like, and what it should look like in everyday activity in life. I mean, one of you, when you're writing a letter, you know, one of the... You know, you usually open it up with something important and you close it with something important. You don't want the person reading the letter to miss it. You want them to understand this is the point. This is what I'm, this is why I'm writing you. And this is what James does here. Now, notice in verse 2, look, let's look at it this way. First, we have a commandment. Now, what is the commandment? Consider it all joy. And then we have the circumstance. That is, we have a commandment to consider it all joy, and then we have the circumstance in which we ought to consider it all joy. And that's when he talks about when you encounter various trials. That word encounter there, your, your translation may say, or fall into various trials. The idea there is that we have a commandment, consider it all joy. We have a circumstance. Okay? We have a circumstance. These trials are not based upon choices that they have made. These trials are not the trials that come from bad decisions. I want you to understand that. Listen, as Christians who, who read your Bibles, you should understand and expect hardships when you make poor decisions. Amen? Right. That is, when I make foolish decisions, I should not expect there to be a tremendous glory from it or blessing from it. When I make poor decisions, we should, as Christians, expect hardship. I'll give you an example. I mean, there are hundreds. I just, that is, a lazy person 
should not expect riches. You choose not to go to work. If you choose to call in sick, you choose to take every vacation day you have, I mean, you, you choose to, to refrain from working, then you're not going to get paid and you're not going to be able to pay your light bill and they're going to turn the lights off and that's not a trial. That's, that's just a scourge. That's punishment. That's chastisement. That's not the child James is talking about. That's not what James is talking about here. James is referring to those things completely outside your control. I'll give you another example. You may exercise. You may uh, juice all the vegetables and carrots and meats and onions that you can drink in a day. You may refrain from eating red meat. I mean, you may only buy organic. You may only get beef chicken at crowded chickens and you can still end up with cancer. You may work hard. Save all your money. Have a tremendous nest egg so to speak. And go bankrupt. All outside of your control. The company you work for loses it. They, they lose, they, hey, they take your retirement account. They squander it. That's not happened, has it? Yeah, it has happened. Circumstances completely outside the control of individuals happen. That's the trials James is talking about. So these are not hardships based on poor decision making. These are situations and conditions that these Christians found themselves in, now James is addressing them. So we have a commandment, consider it all joy. And we're going to talk about what joy is. And we have a circumstance when you fall into various trials. These trials are multifaceted trials. They're, they're numerous. They're big, small, medium-sized. They, they come in batches. They can come in multiples. They can come in you know, one at a time. They can come in three or four at a time. That's what the word means that James uses in the original language. And then we have the result. We have the purpose, or if you will. That is, there's a reason God tells us to consider it all joy. He doesn't just give us a commandment and tell us to be good and run along. He gives us a commandment through, the, through James. He, he teaches us the circumstances. And then he says this, notice in verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance, that is, there is there is a work going on in you. God is working in you. He's using these unpredictable, outside of your control circumstances to do it. He says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James gives us the reason we ought to consider it joy because, look, God is doing a tremendous work in your life. God's in control. I mean, one thing we need to realize and come to grips with, when we look at the news, when we watch Fox News, when we watch CNN, the world's out of control. Men are out of control. Women are out of control. Families are out of control. Governments are out of control. The world is out of control. God is not sitting in heaven wringing His hands over it. They want to produce a fear in us so that they can then command the result from that fear. It's fear-mongering. In America, and I'm not saying America is the only one that does it, but it's a politics by fear. And let me tell you what I mean by that. Vote for so-and-so because if you don't vote for them, you're going to lose something. It's the fear of loss or the fear of something else. It's pandering to fear. If you don't do this, then this is what's going to happen. That's fear. And fear is not faith. Fear is the opposite of faith. See, they wanted us to believe that they know the reality. The news next work will tell us they know what's going on. No, they don't know what's going on. 
That's why we worship. That's why we come to the reality of God. That's why we come to God in Scripture, not in some mystical lighting of candles, walking around in the woods, humming to ourselves, trying to find God. God's right here. He's revealed Himself. He's opened up. He's written it down for us so that we could come to it and read it and prayerfully by the Spirit working in us, look at it, see it, understand it, and apply it. He wants us to know Him. And James even works on this when he says, knowing, you know that knowing that the testing of your faith produces... How do we know this? We know this because God has always tested His children. God's always tested obedience, has He not? Always. And what happens when we find ourselves on the positive aspect of a test? It increases our endurance and hope and assurance. Now we're not going to talk about all those things this morning because I want to deal with joy. Now let's, let's define this joy because I've already touched on it already this morning in talking about the result of this commandment. But notice, we are commanded to consider it all joy. Now the, the best way that I can describe this joy that James is referring to here is again going back to the to the it's the re, it's the reality of a right relationship with God in his son Jesus Christ. That's what this joy is. It's the it's the reality of a right relationship with the true God through his son Jesus Christ. It's the reality. James is writing to believers those who had made a profession of faith in Christ, those who had, you know, in some degree or another pulled out of that, that Jewish ceremonial worship and was beginning to worship Christ according to the teaching of the apostles and now they were beginning to suffer for it. Yet they were to relish and think about and consider the reality that they have a relationship with the true and living God in His Son, Jesus Christ. And that joy is not grounded and based upon some emotion or some feeling. It's grounded in the reality of the covenant of grace. It's grounded in the reality that in this covenant we have a right relationship with God. We've been made right with Him through Christ. See this... Command is not telling us to walk around with a fake smile. This command is not commanding us to walk around and so that when someone asks us how things are going, we lie. Oh, fine. Good. Nothing's wrong in my life. I'm great. See, that's not the reality of the situation. See, you can be in pain and hold to this joy. You can be afflicted and have this joy. Because the joy is based upon the reality of a right relationship with God in His Son, Jesus Christ. It's reality. It's disposition. It's, it's the reality. Look, this is true of me. This profession of faith that I've made is true of me. I believe in Christ Jesus. I believe he, he shed His blood for my sins and I put my faith and trust in Him alone and I trust in Him that I have access to the Father. That I'm, I'm right with God. It's reality. Let me try to help you understand this a little more. That is this this joy is the object of this joy that, we're, that James is commanding of us, brothers and sisters, is not feeling. It's not just the, the happy, clappy moment. That, no, the, the, the object is the glory of God. It's the object of the reality. Why did God save His people? So that they might glorify and enjoy Him forever. That's why you could look at all of the prophets in the Old Testament that suffered for God. 
And they could say, oh, you read the Psalms, what do you see? You see this joy, right? You see this thanksgiving. You see this joyfulness. I know God. I know God. And He knows me. The apostle. I mean, here's the apostle Paul, Acts 9. God says, listen, here's the man that I have chosen for myself to go and declare my name and to be a witness to all the nations. And he, I will show him the things he must suffer for my name's sake. What does Paul do all his ministry? Rejoice. He rejoices in the reality that what? He knows God in Christ. Nothing else matters. I've been stoned. I've been thrown outside. I've been shipwrecked. I've been snake bit. But none of that matters. What matters is that a sinner like me has a right relationship with the Father through His Son. I want to show you more of this joy about it being God's glory. Turn to Hebrews 12. Turn just back a couple of pages and you'll find Hebrews 12. And look at verse 2. Let me read verse 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, fixing our eyes on Jesus, that is, is, We run the race, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Notice this joy that was set before Christ was part of his work. That is, Christ endured all of those infirmities of, of flesh. Not sinful flesh because he had no sin. But he endured the infirmities of the flesh. We, uh, sleep. Hunger. You know. Uh, pain. Uh, anything that hurt. He had nerves just like we did. He was fully man. He endured all of that. The infirmities. He endured all of the obscuring, of the, the scoffing, the, the mocking. He endured all of this for what? The joy that was set before Him. That is, there was something in Jesus' mind that kept Him going and going and going and going as He faced all the trials and tribulations of His own life in ministry. What was that joy? The glory of God. Now, that's general. Let's be specific. He's talking about the church in this passage. That Christ would be seated in His exaltation at the Father's right hand. And you know what Christ would do then? Christ would send the Spirit to the church. He would fill the church with power. He would fill the church with glory. He would fill the church with strength so that they would what? Respond to the preaching of the Word of God. So that the elect of God would respond to the preaching, make use of the means of grace, and what? Be saved and go on to salvation and maturity into that day of glorification. Jesus did all that so that we might what? Be glorified in Him, fully saved and perfected for eternity to spend in the presence of the Father, worshiping and adoring Him. That's the joy. So you see the object of this joy. It's not a feeling. It's not just this emotion. It's not this happy moment. It's it's so much more than that. It's more than that. Jesus did not prevail and continue and persevere because it felt good. It don't feel good to have nails put in your hands. It don't feel good to be hated and mocked and spit at. It don't feel good to have thorns about two inches long crammed and forced down upon your head, the crown of your head. It don't feel good to be scourged and whipped with 40 lashes with leather that's mixed with metal and bone. Doesn't feel good. Don't feel good being made fun of. Being laughed at. He endured all that. Because there was a joy set before him that he knew was far greater 
than any of that. Now, brothers and sisters, we can learn something about that joy by looking at Christ. Amen? Let's look at... Um, I listened to what the Westminster Confession says talks about Christ and the joy set before him. He says that he would, when exalted, effectually uh, persuade God's elect by his spirit to believe in and obey and govern their own hearts with the word and spirit. You know, one of the aspects of the joy that I love is that Christ would, would so work in us to ask what we want to obey God. We want to worship him. I hope you're not here because you have to be. I know children are different. But you ought to want to be here. And I'm not talking about here in this building with me and, and us. I'm talking about in the worship of God and His presence and truth and reality. That's what I'm talking about. There's another aspect of this joy that I want us to look at. Turn to the back, toward the back of your Bible and go to Jude and look at verse 24. Jude 24, and there's a point I want to make here in this benediction that Jude writes at the end of this, this small letter. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, now to him, that's Christ, who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To, our, to the only God, our Father, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Notice what the benediction says. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Sounds like there's a finality to the salvation. And he says, listen, in this benediction, what is Jude saying? Jude is saying, listen, Christ is going to bring about your salvation perfectly. And when he does, there's going to be exceeding joy. That's what he's saying. When your salvation is made perfect and complete, there is not one thing lacking in you or about you. Your joy will be, as Scripture says, exceeding. Now let's back away a little bit. That exceeding joy, brothers and sisters, that joy that becomes exceeding at that point is with you right now. It's, it's, it's true of you now. You see, Christ is going to bring about all things in your life. He is going to bring about all the graces and virtues and all the things that He has promised and has elected and ordained in your life. He's going to bring every bit of that about perfectly. And you're going to stand before the Father perfect. Christ is going to perfectly knit you and make you the man and the woman you were exactly created to be in Him. But He's already doing it now. And that joy... It's to be a reality of your life now because you know Christ. Now, it's, it's by degree, isn't it? It's not exceeding it, is it? It's not exceeding. You, how many here is going to testify to the church that their joy is exceeding right now? Can't do it. Why? Because we are filled with what? Weaknesses and infirmities, Right? We have weaknesses and infirmities, and in these weaknesses and infirmity, it does what? It does hamper or hinder exceeding joy. That's why our joy is mixed right now, isn't it? Our reality, right? It's not that the reality has changed. It's that we, our relationship to the reality becomes what? Sometimes it's strong. Sometimes it's diminished. Sometimes it's just out of weakness. Now let me deal with, I'm just going to say something about weaknesses and infirmities. Weakness and infirmities are not sinful in and of themselves. They may be the result of sin, 
original sin. And they may lead, listen to me, they may lead to sin, but they're not sin. Does everybody understand me? You have weaknesses and infirmities. You all do. I do. But they are not sinful in and of themselves. But they can become sin if we're not careful and diligent and watchful and obedient to God's Word. And Christ is working on our behalf. And He's, listen, and we see these trials that come into our lives. And we know one, God has a purpose. We know God is bringing about the reality of this joy that we will exceedingly experience and partake in in the future. He's bringing about that joy now. Now. I'm going to help you just in a little bit understand that more. All the things that we experience outside of our control that we would think that we would see as legitimate trials are to increase our joy. That believer's joy is both now and future. A believer's joy is both now and future. But it's not that way for an unbeliever. You're different. Believers are different when it comes to these graces than unbelievers. Turn in your Bibles to Job chapter 20. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture that I think will help, help us with this. Now, here's the point I want to make. Let me make my point. My point is this. The Holy Spirit works generally and graciously with all men called common grace. And people can be joyful over reunions, the birth of a child, a wedding, those things that we were created in God's image to enjoy cannot be escaped in this life. In fact, do you know what kind of world this would be if we didn't rejoice in that you know, that we don't, that is, we could all be watching a movie and there could be this tremendous scene where there's this renewal of relationships that have been torn apart over years and adversity, and it's a sentimental moment, isn't it? And we all shed a tear. We all are moved. How does that happen? Because we're made in the image of God and we're made to relish those kinds of reconciliations. We're made that way. But imagine what kind of world it would be without any of that grace. Imagine a world that didn't care about people. Imagine a world that was just completely full of themselves. It'd be dangerous. It'd be a horrible place to live. You wouldn't be safe anywhere you went. But when it comes to believers, look. Look at, look at chapter 20, verse 5. Now this is a response of Zophar. I'm not going to read the whole response. But I want you to notice the question he poses. He says, and, he, and he's, he, the implication is, of course they don't. He says in verse 5, that the triumphing of the wicked is short. Of course it is. And the joy of the godless momentary. Now the, que- the answer to the question is, of course it is, right? So when unbelievers experience joy, it's only for a moment. That's not our joy. That's not the joy we're commanded to in James. The joy we're commanded to is both now and future for us. The reality is both now and future. There's a connection. What I'm going through now has a direct impact on my future and glory. Alright? Look at Matthew chapter 13. Another text to help us. So we're not saying that unbelievers can't experience joy. It's just not the same kind of joy and it's not a lasting joy that we have the privilege or exposure to. Look at um, Matthew thirteen twenty, And the one on whom seed was sown on rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with what? Joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself 
and it's only temporary. And when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, he immediately falls away. See, unbelievers can have joy. But that joy isn't that joy that James has commanded. It falls away. It's temporary. It's momentary. It doesn't last through the afflictions and the trials, the hardships, the difficulties that come with being a Christian, the difficulty that comes with believing and trusting the Word over the world, right? That joy's passed by. It's done. I'm, it's over. I move on to another stage of my life. That joy that I'm pointing to, helping you understand this morning, that James is commanding to you is both now and future and exceedingly in the future. But you can start experiencing it now. This joy can be diminished. It can be, it can be uh, lessened by degree. Psalm 51. David's sin of murder and adultery had a, a tremendous effect upon him. So much so in verse 8, he says, Make me to hear joy and gladness. Why? Because David's sin had hardened him to those graces. Listen, brothers and sisters, one thing that a Christian should never get tired of hearing is the truth. The gospel. The word of God explained and opened up. It doesn't matter if you hear it all your life. That's why when some people say, hey, I wish we could hear something new, something different. Why would you want something new when you have the truth? Why? If this is your joy, right? It's like seeing your loved one, right? It's like seeing your spouse. It's like, hey, look, when you love them, you love them. You love them when you see them. You love them. They're, they're yours. I mean, and you're reminded, they're mine. There's my spouse, my wife, my husband, my children, my dad, my mom, my friends, right? You enjoy it. Then go away. Look at verse 12. David writes, he says, Listen, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. I mean, this is David responding as a, as a believer saying, Listen, my sin has diminished my joy. My sin has robbed me of this grace. My heart has gotten so hard that this grace just didn't have any effect on me. Lord, restore it. Why? Because in the restoration of this joy, David would then realize he had exhibited true repentance. I've really repented. Why? Because God's now blessed me back with the joy. The reality that I have a right relationship with Him in Christ. Assurance. David goes, I need this joy. I need, I'm humbled. I'm broken. Lord, cleanse me. That's why he opens up the psalm and cleanse me. Cleanse me. Cleanse me, wash me, make me clean. How do we do this joy? Well, a couple things that I think will be helpful to us. How do we do it? Well, first of all, I've defined this joy as the reality of a right relationship with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And yet, we are commanded to do it. Verse 2, consider all joy. It's a, that is, we have a commandment to do it. So whatever James is asking of us, whatever this joy is, we can do it. Consider it all joy. It's not emotional. It's not something that is momentary. It is something that we ought to put our minds to, ourselves to. It is something that can be done. It's obedience. Brothers and sisters, he goes on to tell us, notice the reason I read the whole context when he talks about let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, it'll be given to him. Let him ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. There's two things that I want to bring out that I believe is important to this joy and that is this, worship and service. Worship. Joy 
Do you realize how many times joy is connected to worship in Scripture? Go, go back. Go back to Psalm 100. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Look at that. Worship. Sing His praises. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before Him with joyful singing. No. Now look at verse 3. Verse 3 tells us what? That there's only one God and who He is. And it also says, when He talks about it, it's He who made us, not we ourselves. You know what He means by that? He's not talking about creation. He's talking about covenant. We were made in covenant with God. He made us be in covenant with him. We are the sheep of his pasture. We're his. We don't belong to the world. We belong to him. See, there's this intimate connection of this reality that this, this is true of us. And what is, how do we do this joy? We worship. We adore Him. We sing His praises. We offer thanksgiving to Him. We enter His courts with thanksgiving, with praise. We give thanks to Him. We bless His name. For the Lord is good, right? Notice, what, is, what are we taught in, in part of worship? What's part of worship? Prayer. See, if you go into, if you, are, if you fall into this trial, how do you know you're considered all joy? Are you worshiping? Has it hampered your worship? Your prayer? See, James deals with prayer. He says, listen, if you lack wisdom, do what? Ask of God, pray. Where's a great place to be reminded of a lack of wisdom? Worship. Where's a great place for you to sit out there and go, Oh God, open my eyes, make me wise. You say, yeah, I can do that at home. Of course you can. And you should. But you should be reminded of the reality that you are in in worship. The reality that Jesus is your mediator and you've been blessed with all of these means of grace and has that trial hindered you from these graces or increased the desire for these graces. See, if that, if you don't give yourself more to the worship, to the service, to prayer, asking for wisdom, and even that with a certain attitude, if you're not doing that, then I'm going to tell you, brothers and sisters, you're not obeying the commandment to consider it all joy. Because if you think I can just keep a smile on my face and be stoic and say, hey, I'm going to get through this. That's not Christianity. And that's not what God is putting you through the trial. Yes, to mature you, but to understand what? That you're being matured under the graces that He has granted to you. And worship is a primary grace. How you come to worship is a primary grace. How you approach worship. How you come to worship how you view worship, how you long for worship, how you delight in worship or not delight in worship. Every bit of that is indicative to the fact of the reality of the joy in your life and whether or not you're doing it. Psalm 1 mentioned the offering of thanksgiving. It talked about the goodness of God. James addresses the goodness of God right there in verse 13 and following. Now notice it's a commandment that we ought to do it. But now even look at, so you have prayer up in verse 5. You have humility, look at verse 9, right? The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position. And the rich man is to glory in his humiliation because like a flowering grass he will all pass away. Let me ask you this. Where's the greatest place for the poor and the rich man to come together and be reminded of the experience they share? Where does that happen most? Worship. Guess what? God doesn't look at you and respect you for what you have when you come into worship. It doesn't matter if you're the poor man or the rich man. Let the poor man do what? Let the poor man do what? Glory in his humiliation. Why? 
Because the poor man sits out there and he worships God and he says, what, would, what do I have to offer the Lord? Nothing. I have nothing. Why would the Lord save me? And he glories in that humiliation. But the Lord saved me in Christ. He gave himself for me. Worship. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation because the rich man realizes when he's in the presence of God and the worship of his people that he has nothing. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns this earth. He made it. He created it. He can, God could speak a million gazillion gold mines into existence if he wanted to. What's a rich man have in comparison to God? Nothing. And he shares something along with everybody else in the worship service. He's going to pass away and leave nothing behind. It's worship. You can do this joy, beloved, by, by doing your worship well. When you come into worship God, what are you thinking about? Lunch? Tomorrow? What you have to do after church? I just want this over with? Same old thing? What are you thinking about? Joy set before you. James goes on and he deals with even, I think, this aspect of the preaching of the gospel. Notice verse 23. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man that looks at his natural face in the mirror. And once he has looked at himself and he goes away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful here, but a effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. Are you doing joy? This is how you do joy. You come to worship, you hear the word, and you obey it. You exalt and praise God that He's the God of lights and there's no shadow of turning in Him and every good gift comes from Him. He gives wisdom to all who ask for it. It's the place where all men and women are on equal footing. <laughs> I don't care what you drove up in. You're not taking it to heaven. Does the man hear the word? Are you doing joy? Are you hearing the word and forgetting what you hear? You're not obeying the commandment that James started with. Consider it all joy. You can't do it. You have to know what this joy is and you have to do it. And this joy, I believe, is wrapped up in two things. Worship and service. Worship and service. The worship of God and the service of God. When you hear the word, you do it. And that opens up the rest of the book for us. And James is going to explain what this service looks like. And that's why he ends the book right the way he does. He says in verse 26, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue and deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained by the world. Brothers and sisters, worship and service. Love God and love one another. That's how you, that's how you do joy. You consider God's glory. You consider what He's doing in your life and the bringing about the, the completeness of, of your character and salvation. And then you look at all the graces that He's given you to partake in to accomplish all of that. And then how does that affect your, your role in the life of others? How does that affect you? James does what? He says in the service, he says, look at yourself. Consider yourself. Then serve others. Consider yourself and serve others. Worship, pray, humble, 
Humility, humble yourself. The presence of God, hear his word, preach, be a doer of it. Obedience. Joy is an obedience. That's what I want to end with. We've defined it. And how do we do it? We obey it. How do we obey it? We dedicate ourselves to this means of grace that James explains in chapter 1. Worship, prayer, hearing of the word, doing the word, changing ourselves, sanctification. We have that privilege of the Spirit being in us. And this is important, beloved, because without the Spirit abiding in us, our joy would be momentary and temporal, like the world. But because the Spirit is in us, make an effectual prayer, make an effectual worship, make an effectual the hearing of the Word of God, make an effectual our service. The Word, the Spirit is working in us on behalf of the Father in Christ so that we can what? Benefit and truly benefit from all of the graces that we put our hands. It's not in vain is what I'm saying. And that's why people can look at you and go, I don't know why you do this. And say, you couldn't understand it anyway. Because the Spirit of God works in me a love for God that I, I, I can't deny. And I won't deny. He's priority. And I'll do everything in my own power to protect Him being priority number one. Though I fail... I will always get back up and make him priority number one. Amen? Consider it all joy, a right relationship with God in Christ. Okay? Do it. Do the joy. If you're not making use of worship, and I'm not talking about just being here, making use of it, you're not practicing the commandment. If you're not making full use of worship and all that it entails, you're not making use of the commandment to worship that be uh, considered all joy. You can't do it. If you're not looking at the Word and, re and desiring it and hungering for it, you're not, you, can't, you, you can't consider it all joy. You can't help others. You can't help others truly unless you help yourself. And here's what I mean by that. It's just vanity. Help yourself. Conform to the image of Christ yourself. And then you'll be humble when you go out to help others. And you'll do it for the right reasons. For his glory. Not so you can get a pat on the back. Let's pray.